Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Today, I welcome back Sarah Manguso. Sarah is a fiction writer, essayist, and poet. Her nonfiction books include Ongoingness and 300 Arguments, for which she was on the show with me in January of 2017. A link to that interview can be found in our archives. She's also the author of two poetry collections and one story collection. Most recently, she wrote her first novel, Very Cold People, was out this past February. Before I bring her on, a quick reminder that we're now offering perks on Patreon. You can visit us at www.patreon.com slash writers on writing to see some of the benefits of becoming a patron. We offer some fun writing tips and tricks every week. Any level of support helps us out. If the show has boosted your writing in some way, check us out there. We appreciate it all. On with the show. Sarah, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So I was just refreshing my memory about 300 arguments after I finished Very Cold People. And the first argument reads, interestingly, a great photographer insists on writing poems. A brilliant essayist insists on writing novels. A singer with the voice like an angel insists on singing only her own terrible songs. So when people tell me I should write this or that thing I don't want to write, I know what they mean. (laughs) And uh So knowing the publishing business, as I do from doing this show for 15 years, you know, I was just wondering if you felt a bit of pressure to to write a novel or if this was 100% you were all in on this on this form all the way along. You know, many of my fiction writing friends for years said, Sarah, you really should just write a novel. And I said, no, I have no idea what a novel is. And they said, it's, it's just, there's no such thing. Like there's, it's, it's just, it's just what you're doing. Just, just do that, but make it a novel. And I still couldn't understand. I, I just, I just had no conception of the act of writing a novel, but my publishers for many years, really as soon as I put out my first memoir in 2008, were really gunning for me to write an essay collection because, you know, memoir, I like a, a sort of short memoir is good, but an essay collection that's got some meat on its bones. And more than one publisher said, you know, you really should write uh, an essay collection, like, you know, like Sontag, just, just do that. And I said, yeah, no, no interest in writing anything even remotely approaching uh, social criticism, unless it's mostly about me. And they said, okay, but you know, like it, it, they didn't, they didn't say, they didn't say as much, but the, the subtext was, we know better. This is a really good idea. And you're wasting your moment in the sun by not doing it. <laughs> and um, I, yeah, I, I'm just, uh, God, I, I was accused by a therapist many years ago of being, a quote, angry young man. And my, you know, my personality really, it really was like that. As soon as you give me an assignment, I'll find a way to, you know, completely um, fail to uh, fill your expectations, but, but also just sort of do the assignment anyway, in a way that I would just, I would get the grade, but, but also just do it wrong. So with, with that as my as like my core sensibility, I I'm I can't imagine it having gone any other way. I, I I still don't think I'm ever going to produce an essay collection, though. Every few years, I publish an essay somewhere. 
And, and, you know, it, and I can talk more about what it was like to write a novel after writing nonfiction, but I don't, I don't, you know, I want to give you a chance to ask me another question. too. Well, I mean, when we talked last time, which was 2017, it sounded like this, this novel was percolating. I mean, it sounded like this is something that you've been thinking about for doing for a long time. And we're writing, I think there's even an aphorism in 300 arguments about I'm doing this book as sort of a distraction from my, writing my magnum opus. And so, yeah, I was wondering at what point in in your life you thought this novel is coming and and what, what Oh, you- from the very beginning. Uh okay. the first long, you know, the first long book I published or the first, I don't know, I hesitate to call it a commercial book because it wasn't commercial, but my book The Two Kinds of UK came out in 2008 and it was my first um autobiographical book. It was, a, you know, it was marketed as a memoir. And it's about an autoimmune disease that I developed in my 20s. But the book originally was going to be, as you say, my magnum opus. It was going to be my great work, my, my, my you know, my, my major work. You know, I, I was so enamored of the idea that a serious writer had major works and minor works. And I, you know, I, I I've, I've been disabused of this belief since I, I think Annie or no being awarded the literature Nobel really brought home the accurate message that I was resisting for so long, which is that you can just publish minor works forever. And you you don't have to have this grand thousand page tome that people will say, oh, you know, this is this is what the person produced. And then all of the other sort of shorter books surrounding it were, were just sort of practice. But so at the time that I was writing the two, the two kinds of decay, I originally conceived of it as a book that would be about social class in Massachusetts and living in a former colony and just knowing all of that colonial history so deeply because it really, it was present at every moment, despite the fact that white people had been using that land and that, that place for 400 years. And I, and uh, maybe, you know, but the, um, the book is composed of very short sections between one and three pages long. And the first one that I wrote was about a social club at Harvard. And it was meant to serve as an introduction to understanding what it was like to grow up thinking I was middle class and then go to Harvard and realize that I wasn't. And that there were so many classes above me. I, I, I had had no idea they had even existed. And in that section, um, I had to make mention of the fact that I was wearing a catheter in my heart that year because I was receiving different kinds of medication while my, my uh, peripheral veins had blown out. And, you know, this immediately I realized no, I, I didn't even realize immediately that that was by far the more interesting story. But I thought, uh, you know, I have to write another section just to explain why I had this catheter in my heart so I can get back to my real subject, which is social class in New England. Inevitably, the book became about me and my body. And I but but, you know, I always had this bug in my ear that I had to write this grant, the New England book. And it was it wasn't so much that I thought it was a great idea, but just that material had been. I mean, you use the word percolating, but it was it was more like it it had just been sort of like eating away at me since childhood, and I longed to understand it and and contain it in the form of a book. And I tried many times and in many ways, 
and different different kinds of essayistic nonfiction to to write this book, and I I, I couldn't. And then, you know, finally in my mid forties, I thought, oh, right, it has to be a novel because there isn't, there just isn't. I mean, there was so much growing up in Massachusetts at the time that I did was was just so um, it was such a silent era, or maybe maybe it's just it's a silent place, but there there was so much omission and subtext and secrets. And it was, it, there just wasn't enough that I could actually write that would describe everything that I wanted to say about Massachusetts. And so finally, ultimately, when I realized I, I, I would have to do it as fiction, then I started making some headway. And then I wrote the book, Very Cold People, and then immediately thought, oh, I'm, I'm not even nearly done writing about Massachusetts. I'm going to have to write another Massachusetts book. And so I told my publisher I would, but now, now I'm doing that thing again. And then I, I wrote a completely different book, you know, in, uh, just as I wrote 300 Arguments as a way to um, convince myself that I was getting work done, even though I wasn't writing this book that I was supposed to be writing. So I don't know, Marie, am I going to write another New England book at some point? I, I mean, I think so, but I've been wrong before. Well, one of the enduring themes on the show, as I talk to a lot of authors, seems to be, A, that fertile ground of childhood. And, and I think there's something about writing about a place for, for writers before you had language for it, when all of the stuff is just sort of seeping into your subconscious. And at the time it is, you don't have language to give it. And so you spend the rest of your life trying to figure it out because it was, you know, that pre-verbal stuff I think is just so visceral. But the other thing is giving yourself sort of time and distance physical time and physical distance from the place that you're trying to write about to figure it out. And everything you're saying sounds totally consistent with those two things that you you have to get away from a place to really see it with any objectivity. And yet it still has to remain so visceral in you that you can write about it effectively. So I, I don't know if any of that rings true. Oh, all of it rings absolutely true. I could not write about Massachusetts until I got off the East Coast. I live in California now. And yes, I, 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 you know, it has to be an object. It can't, I can't be in it in order to write about it. Although as, as I heard myself saying that sentence, I realized I was contradicting the very form of the book ongoingness in which I was writing about ongoing time as I was living it. But I love what you said about writing about pre-verbal or really just any kind of wordless experience. Um, that may be why I'm so drawn to just writing about embodiment and how it feels to live in a body. In the novel that I'm working on now, there's a long, well, I guess not that long, but there, there's an important section that takes place in a park, which I realize is a wordless place. Like a tree doesn't have words. And you know, a, 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 it, it, a park doesn't have, well, this park doesn't have signs to read or, um, you know, people that you need to interact with by use of language. It really is a place where you can just be absolutely embodied and not have to think about language. And that's my, absolutely, that is my favorite subject or object to write about because I'm so easily overstimulated and 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 glutted with verbal information in the world i mean maybe no maybe no more so than any other nor normal person but 
I really like having not very much to work with. That's that's really my preferred natural state as a writer and as a human being. I like to just have a little bit to work with because the potentials just seem so much greater to me than you know, having like all of the great art supplies that money can buy in order to to draw your picture. I'd rather have some like shitty piece of paper that I found somewhere that's much more thrilling for me. I think you even taught an entire class on omission. Maybe we can we can talk about that. And in, in yes, I but. yes, I teach omission all the time. I taught it for the first time at Columbia about ten years ago, and you know, in it, I, I it was a little bit more didactic than I think I would choose to teach it now, but. I was younger and I felt that I needed to seem like a teacher when I taught. Um, so basically what I did is I, I tried to categorize all of the types of literary omission into a few, I think it was five or six categories. And I mean, the students were incredible. Like it, it really was the best way for me to teach that class, to, to just teach it for the first time, not really knowing what I was doing, coming in with a few ideas. And man, those Columbia students really delivered and they helped me understand different, you know, combined types of omission. And they, they helped me see the potential of what you could leave out in ways that I, I hadn't thought of before. And um, I've, I've, I've sort of, I've poured all of that into a talk that I give occasionally and I'm, you know, I'm still improving upon it. It's not, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider my thinking about omission to be complete uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But some of the types of omission we talked about were, were subject, what we call subjective omission, where you don't know what the speaker or narrator is feeling. Descriptive omission, of course, when something important is left out of a visual description. And, um, and then all kinds of narrative omission, which is probably the, the biggest category and the most fun, really. Um, I mean, it just, it seems like a magic trick when it's done when it's done really well and something is left out of the story, but alluded to so heavily that it becomes the most important part of the story. Well, and this novel was such a great example of that. I mean, with just a few brush strokes, you really felt, I haven't spent any time in Massachusetts, hardly at, at all, but such a sense of time and place. We grew up sort of in the same, I'm a little bit older, but sort of in the same time period. I'm so glad you, you felt that way as you read it. Somebody said, thank God this is over because you were so in it. You know, it was so, oh, really? <laughs> so close. I take that as a compliment. <laughs> it is. It is a compliment. No, it was so, uh, so visceral. Well, let's lay the foundation. I mean, in the event people haven't yet had a chance to pick it up, why don't you take us a little bit into, into Ruthie's very cold world? And then that'll, that'll sort of set the stage for some of my other questions. Okay, sure. Yeah. Ruthie is growing up in a small town in eastern Massachusetts near Boston in the late 70s and, and 80s. And she goes to her little neighborhood school and she has a few friends. And despite the fact that if, if one didn't understand the exquisitely small gradations between social class an outsider would probably show up in the town and say, oh, everyone here's the same. I mean, you're all white. You're all, you know, everybody sort of values this idea of Yankee thrift, of not really having enough, which going back to what we just talked about with my pleasure in not really having enough material to create a story or to write a book, you know, I sometimes wonder whether this type of childhood, which I had, colored the way that I um, interact with the world now. But, you know, it was considered virtuous to not not use 
everything that a less careful person would use. So you, in the winter, you would just not heat your entire house. And if you lived off a family trust, you would just keep driving your old car for decades until it just fell apart on Route 9. And so what Ruthie is trying to do in this book is to make sense of the background world, which is one of unallayed violence and abuse. But she sees it not so much as a story, but as the background. And it was important for me to present it as such. Yeah, well, initially I thought, oh yeah, I'll have, you know, I'll have these lurid stories of terrible things that happened to girls, because that was absolutely uh, all that there was growing up in Massachusetts. A terrible thing would happen to this friend, and then a terrible thing would happen to the next friend, and we were just sort of round robin until we all got pregnant or died or graduated from high school. That was that was it. That's what we had. But then I realized that it would be so much more interesting not to really foreground any one of those stories, but to present them as the background. And that was what made that place and that time, though I don't think it's particularly unique and I don't think things have changed that much, but I I, I wanted to portray that place and time as just, there's no control group. It's just every girl was in a situation that she could not but be damaged and often destroyed by. So everybody predated upon these children. And the the turning point in the book, though I don't want to talk, I don't want to talk about the ending, but the turning point in the book is this sort of island of imagination. And it was the first part of the book that I wrote. Initially, when I thought the book would be about this character, Winifred Cabot Fish, Mm -hmm. who is a woman of one of the founding Bostonian families, the Cabots who marries into money. And, and this all takes place pretty soon after the turn of the 20th century. And I originally envisioned this book, that, you know, this book would be this sort of, you know, sweeping multi-generational, you know, exploration of this, of this place in this really deep way, because I thought the subject was big enough to occupy a book like that. And it was, but I'm just not the person to write that book. So I I had 10 or 15 pages about Winifred. I had nothing more to say about Winifred. She still really seems to seem to just belong so deeply to Massachusetts or to the Massachusetts of my imagination. And it was when I realized that I wanted Ruthie to be the one thinking about Winifred and imagining what was happening to Winifred that I think the book became much more interesting as an object and sort of, you know, excitingly incoherent in a way that really appealed to me. So Ruthie thinks about Winifred and she she sort of envisions Winifred as this, as this woman of agency, which is not a type of character that Ruthie has any evidence even exists in the world, in her world. All of the women and all of the girls are utterly under the control of these, um, you know, exquisitely unspoken but extraordinarily strong constraints and rules set by the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't say it's, you know, they're not set by men because the, the women immediately become complicit because there's no other way to be. Um, so Ruthie imagines Winifred as this woman of agency who gets out of Waitsfield and Ruthie just kind of 
hangs on to that story and it becomes useful to her in a way. She kind of alchemizes it into a narrative that she can undertake herself. And ultimately she does find a way to get out of Waitsfield. And that's, that's the story. So she, Winifred came, it sounds like very early in your imagination and really relatively late into the book. And at at some point, when did you sort of decide that she had to be put off in the narrative and, you know, that the story couldn't be sort of. It couldn't be Winifred. Yeah. The, the, the working title was Winifred for, for so long. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, um, you know, it, it, it was just another another case of my having an idea of the book that I thought I should write. And this goes back to your original question, you know, oh, I should write an essay collection. I should write a novel. It should be a sweeping multi-generational story. And I've just, that's just not where books come from. You know, I, I can't write a book out of obligation to some idea of what I'm supposed to be writing. Maybe some people can, but I, I doubt it. Uh, I, you know, I think, I think books have to come out of, there has to be a little, a little shame and a little like a frisson of knowing you're not doing it right or knowing that, you know, <laughs> or maybe, maybe the idea that I'm all that I, I have, I've set myself up to fail puts me into a much calmer frame of mind because there's really nothing at stake. Like this isn't going to be the sweeping multi-generational novel that finally renders me in my own mind, uh, you know, the serious, the serious writer that I feel I ought to be, you know, maybe I'll take myself seriously if I write 800 page historical novel. That was definitely part of my, uh, part of the draw, but no, I mean, I, the, the way I write and the way I suspect many writers write is that the work has to just kind of bubble up out of some almost physical need to capture it on the page, not out of some idea of what a serious book should be. Right. And as you had been talking about wanting to write about issues of class and whiteness and all of baggage that comes with with growing up in Massachusetts and this, you know, these legacy families, I had thought about that. I had thought about how did Sarah put aside those, you know, I'm I'm going to write about class, but of course that's not how novels are written. They're written by character. They're written by, you know, what happens to Ruthie and not these sociological constructs of of class and whiteness and, you know, but that's all in there. That all gets in there. But it's it's so very much embodied in in Ruthie's body and her experience. And uh I'm glad you said that, that all those big issues fell away, but yet they, they still got in there through your subconscious. Yeah. It really was written from the bottom up. Yeah. Just these tiny particular, as you said, these, these embodied, uh, you know, re- yeah, it's, it's things that Ruthie notices as a child, she doesn't process as, oh, I'm having an experience of distorted uh, view of my own social class. No, I mean, for Ruthie, it's just <laughs> sort of like, I see this in the garden and I see this in the schoolroom. These are the things that I'm trying to make sense of. Right. I want to go back to the point that you made earlier about how the the really interesting thing to me about this novel is that the violence is the setting and the setting is the plot. And, you know, this house and these details really almost felt like there's a there's a detail about the mother where she has this old wristwatch catalog that she uh, she irons and you know casually leaves out on the table and then she sort of straightens it you know to make it look mm-hmm. casually onto yeah. the table yeah 
And those little details almost sort of become, not become the plot, but they become just the emotional tenor of this book and the violence of what happens to these, these young girls over and over is you're right. It's just sort of the the setting of where they live. And I won't give anything away towards the end, but, but Ruthie makes the observation that this is, it's quaint. Like the violence is almost nostalgic or quaint or something. And it's, oh, that's t- a terrifying way to put it, but yes, it, it, yeah, it is quaint. It's, it's traditional. Traditional. Right. So I, you know, we talked a lot about mothering in, in our last conversation and your interest in mothering and the mother in here is such an interesting character. And we come to understand her differently throughout the book, of course. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about this mother and how much you knew about her and at what points perhaps she surprised you in the writing process to come to understand her differently. I, I just wondered if we oh, could. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. It's, it's as if you know exactly what I want to say about this mother. So I knew I wanted to portray the mother as abusive and I wanted it. I wanted the abuse to be as with just about everything in the book, almost silent and almost wordless and almost invisible, but still extraordinarily powerful. I mean, the, the power that the mother wields over Ruthie is, well, I mean, it's, it's the power that any mother rules or any, any, any mother wields over her offspring, especially when the offspring are very young. It's, it's, um, she has a kind of absolute power. And what surprised me in writing about this abusive mother, though, I knew I didn't want her to be cartoonishly abusive. And, you know, obviously I, there were there were ways in which I knew that the mother would have to change, um, though not necessarily grow, because I mean there are, there are only so many pages you can fill with an absolutely static character. But as the mother interacts with Ruthie and to a lesser extent some of the other characters in the book, I was surprised to find that I located almost as this secret center of the abuse a kind of love that I felt the mother was sort of protecting Ruthie from even knowing about, not for any perverse reason, but because the love that the mother has for Ruthie is sort of, it's wrapped up and almost incubated by her fear that her love would be found out and then, of course, surrounding the fear are all of the tendencies and behaviors that people use to hide fear. So, you know, anger, cruelty, abuse, all of that. But I wasn't expecting to find that secret little warm particle of love inside the mother. And that discovery is is similar to the other discoveries that I made as I wrote about this place that despite the fact, you know, it's called very cold people, the people are, are cold, the environment is, is cold, you know, the climate is cold. There were these just little, tiny, hot, throbbing moments of uh, an alternative to that coldness that just keeps everything alive and continuing mm. in, in that cold place, in those cold people. So yeah, so that that was that was like the the great discovery that I made about the mother. It's coincidentally, I was reading Jamaica Kincaid's Girl, mm-hmm. uh, 
sort of a flash fiction piece. And I was, I was thinking about, it's just this sort of semi-cruel instruction manual from a mother to a daughter about how to live in the world as a woman and, and uh, reading these two things sort of side by side, you know, in the past weeks, I was, I was just thinking about the job, the obligation of mothers to, to protect their daughters from, you know, sort of future and in this case, maybe not even future harm and how you go about doing that without, you know, I, I just think, you know, the mother was very casual with her. She was a bit of a narcissist or maybe a lot of a narcissist. Oh, yeah. She was casual with her own sexuality. She was wearing, you know, inappropriate row, you know, bathrobes and exposing herself and just being very uh, sexually inappropriate, sexually inappropriate. Thank you. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and the violence that does the the sort of unspoken yeah. violence that does to a daughter as well and all of this was just so quietly quietly rendered is that a lot through the revision uh, you know sort of a writerly process question does that come a lot through the revision of you don't strike me as a writer who really overwrites and then has to cut out you know 800 pages you strike me as a writer who gets to the the hot and iron at the core of the fire and then has to build out from that but um yeah, well, yeah, I I definitely don't write eight hundred extra pages, but I will write a hundred. Mm. So it's not um, no. I mean, I again, I I, um, I guess I'm I'm hungry for compliments. So I'm taking that as a compliment that I that I um, I'm, I I work more efficiently than maybe some other writers do. But I, it's still not as if it's it, it's. Uh, no, no one is ever going to write a book that's maximally efficient. I was listening to one of my one of my poetry mentors back from graduate school. My I, I got an MFA in poetry, and um, he was talking about his process and said that by the time he writes the poem down, outside of his mind, where he's been turning it over and turning it over, really most of the revision is done. And I thought, oh yes, you know, when I was a poet, I I really um, I almost fetishized the idea of this perfect this perfected process by which I would never waste a word on paper or or you know I mean I was using a computer by then um, but uh, but yeah I just don't, I think you can write a poem that way but I don't I don't think you can write a novel that way I think there has to be some kind of there, well, at least at least when writing this novel, there just needed to be more exploration of how the work should sound, and it was more than I could hold in my head at any one time. So, you know, there had to be some some waste on paper. We'll be right back with more from Sarah Manguso and Very Cold People in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show, if you've learned any tips or tricks that may have inched you closer to publication, whatever it is, you can reach out to us at www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Sarah Manguso talking about Very Cold People. I 
I just came across this concept in the last week, metadigetic novels, which are just like narratives within narratives and stories within stories. So an embedded narrative. And this, I thought was such a great example of that too, of we understand that Ruthie is writing the entire story from a point of view of having, having gotten out, but the container of the book pretty much is her experience inside of it. And I was wondering if you felt like you needed to give her that distance of time of growing up and of, you know, coming to understand things that she couldn't have possibly understood when she was that age to set it, you know, in a, in a embedded narrative within a narrative and and kind of when that structure came to you. Oh, I don't know when that structure came to you or came to me. (laughs) I knew that I wanted to write about Ruthie's naivete and about her really education in in abuse and trauma but i i just wasn't interested in having a naive narrator though um i i wanted to she doesn't need to understand everything but yeah i just i just couldn't think of a i couldn't think of a book in which i would have the child laboriously learning all of the things that ruthie had to learn uh, it just it just seemed like again, I mean, to to go back to this this idea of efficiency, it just didn't seem like the way that I wanted to present the material. I think another writer could have done it marvelously well, but I just wasn't drawn to something that would have to be quite that long and quite quite that complex as we watched Ruthie learn and become more sophisticated by degrees. Was there any temptation to write it either in the third person or in row oh, yeah. points of eye, you know, where we got into other characters' brains, or was it really always going to be Ruthie's story? Oh, it was third person uh, in the beginning. And and this is a case of somebody, me in this case, ne- needing to learn something experientially rather than by listening to somebody else try to teach it to me. So for years, my friend, Julie Oringer had been telling me, who, who's a marvelous f- fiction writer. I think of her as a real fiction writer, not as somebody who sort of sidestepped out of memoir and wrote a novel by accident, as I just did. But, you know, she said, just write it in first person. It'll, it'll be just like a memoir. And I, and I always said, you know, it's nothing like a memoir. It's absolutely nothing. There are so many more choices that I'm responsible for. It's And I, you know, and, and a novel needs to be in third person. Stop saying it. And then, um, once I once I realized that I would have to make this Massachusetts book a novel, it took me two years to, you know, working steadily through two years until I realized, oh, yeah, I can just do what I always do and make it first person. And there are just a few more decisions that I'm responsible for, but not that many. And so it won't be that much harder than writing this sort of book that I already know how to write. But there was just no way that I, I could have known that without trying and trying to do all of the things that I thought I was obligated to do in order to produce a novel. I was sort of mentally going through that exercise. And as we mentioned, you know, earlier, it's such a novel of the body. I mean, it's such a novel of intimacy. And as I I think you phrased it as, you know, writing it from the inside out or from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. And a third person just, you know, as I was kind of mentally trying to play around with that myself, it just didn't work. I mean, it just, it felt so much of, you know, Ruthie's core beating heart. Any sort of distance from her would have felt almost inauthentic or something. Like it almost would have just, we're so in her and uh, to get any distance from her at all 
psychological distance, even just the pronoun distance just felt wrong. It just felt too. Well, it would have been a different book. And yeah. I, I think a lot of other writers do astonishing things with third person and with close third. And yeah, that's just not the book that I, that I wrote, but um, you know, it is, it is, it, it is really good for my ego to hear, um, you know, that any other way of writing this book would have been wrong and bad and worse. And, <laughs> and um, you know, I know that's not the case, but it's, uh, but it, it's nice to hear from a reader that, that the book cohered so much that you can't imagine, you know, editing it. Any other way. Yeah, right. Well, you're right. It, it just would have been different. Well, to Julie's point about tricking yourself into writing a memoir and giving, I imagine that you gave Ruthie a couple of your childhood memories of just this or, you know, yes. observing ducks on the pond or something. Yes, it actually happened. And I was wondering, you know, I mean, a, a character has to be their own person. And so the way that they would digest a memory has to be their own way as opposed to Sarah's way. And I was wondering if there's anything you can say about when Ruthie, when you felt like Ruthie really, you know, you had breathed the breath of life into her and she took off on her own. And if there were ways in which she surprised you of, you know, having her own agency in the world and and making her own decisions. I wouldn't say that I was necessarily surprised, although I I am always and will probably be permanently so uh, taken by this idea that at a certain point, the characters take over, they become real, you're not really making choices anymore, they tell you what they think they should do. I didn't have that experience. But I did as you correctly observe, the very particular moments, especially early on when Ruthie is young, the gunpowder smell that comes from taking little pieces of broken granite and scraping a, a, a like a, um, a terracotta brick pass. There are just, there are certain just smells and physical sensations that I remember so deeply in my body that I, that I gave to Ruthie. And I guess she didn't really start to distinguish herself as profoundly separate from me until other people got involved. And I guess, I guess what I mean by that is, is, is the other girls. So the other girls are not based on human beings who existed. They are, they are, they're wholly invented. And even if there are occasionally, there's occasionally maybe something somebody says that's based on something that somebody said in 1979 in Newton, Massachusetts, forcing Ruthie to interact with, with what were truly fictional characters, I think helped her become more of a fictional character. And, um, and it became very, it became very automatic. And if I initially had worried that people might read this book and just say like, oh, well, this is just Sarah's story. And she calls herself Ruthie in it. And it's, it's not a novel. And it's just, you know, I, I stopped worrying about that as soon as the, um, all the girls started needing to interact with each other because they, at that point, they really all were fictional characters. It feels like such an American novel to me, you know, this whole idea, first of all, idea of class. And I know, you know, if we if we all hailed from Europe, there, there would be its own uh, social structure of class that they would probably think of as, you know, far more entrenched and codified or something. But here, I mean, I've lived in this tiny little seaside town in Southern California my whole life, but they're still like, oh, when did you get here? When did you arrive? Mm-hmm. Oh, you're only a 
transplant, you've only been here 25 years as opposed to, you know, a hundred, <laughs> the timeline yeah. is a hundred years. Yeah. But there's something so American about it. And I was wondering if in the context of writing about it in the past decade or however long you've been working on it, and maybe we can talk about how long this took, the shifting landscape of the world around us about what America is and and what it always was, if any of that you felt like was seeping into the America that you were writing about in the 70s and 80s. It, it, it's interesting to think about that because as I was finishing it, the world was rapidly, the world around us, outside my book, outside my house was course rapidly changing and and yes the ideas and the you know the traditional narratives of america were being scuttled and exposed as just utter utter fabrication that i don't i, I don't think that made its way into into that novel it th- that's sort of making its way into what i'm working on now but something that you made me think of uh when you said that this book felt uniquely american it reminded me that long before i even found a way into writing about Massachusetts and class. I had these really, there were, there were just a few conversations with people that I vividly remembered that were sort of conversations about class, conversations about class that were sort of adjacent to what I was trying to work on in the book. And one of them was in talking with friend who had grown up in London, uh, working class biracial, she said casually, oh, well, you know, America doesn't really have class. Like, you know, the UK has class, but there's no class system in America, (laughs) to which I just left. And then later on, years later, somebody said, an American said, oh, well, you know, there's social class on the East Coast, but there isn't any on the West Coast. It's just not there. And Mm -hmm. that, it was like those two data points traced for me this essential truth that Everybody thinks that the places that they are from and all the places older than those that they are from possess class, but that the places that are newer or, you know, more recently settled than the places that they are from don't have class. And I know that's not a universal, but it was just so interesting to me that those, those, those two data points just described this crazy willful ignorance that class isn't absolutely everywhere and that as soon as two people are in a room it becomes you know it becomes almost a game for them to figure out the pecking order like and again I, I there are people in my life who would say Sarah you are insane people don't do that that's not a thing and maybe that's just something that's essential to New England that I will never be rid of but um, as yeah, as soon as I feel people meeting and sizing each other up, a huge part of that for me is um, oh yeah, they're trying to figure out what class each one of them belongs to, and and in so doing, you know, not not always as a, like an an aggressive, you know, they're not subjecting each other to like mutual punishment or or aggression, but just to understand how to relate to each other. And, you know, maybe, maybe it's not, maybe this calculation isn't about uh, wanting to be the one on top. Maybe, maybe this calculation is just about wanting to find a way to make each other comfortable. Oh, I mean, it's, it's just universal. I mean, I live in Orange County, which has been described as the vortex of evil, but you certainly wow. could not have a, a dinner party without, I mean, that's the first thing that people do is they try and figure out. Yeah. 
who is Orange County kind of like the New Jersey of California, or am, am I wrong about that? You, you know, you could be right. You could be right. I don't know enough about Jersey to con- yeah. You could be right. I mean, we live in a little artist enclave in it, but uh, mm-hmm. no, it's oh, that sounds <laughs> nice. Actually, it's hard. Yeah, it's a little hard. But I mean, you know, class is alive and well at every. You're right. Once two people are together, there's class involved. And watching that unfold through very specific details in this book, oh, it's just cringy. I mean, it really was just very, just very cringy. And you're right, the casual violence. I think there was somebody in here who asked Ruthie how she did on a test. And oh, yeah. Even even money aside, it happens with, you know, what clothes you're wearing and her bedazzled shoes. There's a thousand ways. Yeah, Yeah. they're either legible to, your interlocutor, or your, you know, they're either legible to the people who are observing you or they're not, but they're always witnessed all these little, little class markers. The, the, the character that you just brought up, the one that asks Ruthie how she did on a test um, is Colleen Dooley. And she is one of the few characters in the book who gets a first and a last name. And it just seemed important to me as a way of setting her apart from the more intimate relationships that Ruthie has with her close friends. And I was, I just, I loved this Colleen Dooley. You used the word cringy. You know, Colleen Dooley is just this wholly unself-aware, you know, she's, she's like a person onto whom people project all their embarrassment and everything Colleen Dooley does makes people think, oh my God, I can't believe she did that. I'm so glad I'm not her. But Colleen Colleen Dooley surprised me by being someone who in her sort of essential separateness from most of the rest of the world of these girls Mm -hmm. manages to make for herself a kind of safety in that separateness. And I, I have to confess, I was really surprised by what inevitably seemed to need to happen to Colleen Dooley by the end of the book. Although Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say what it is. Yeah, I mean, there's even competition among these girls about who, and there always is at this age of who's developing first and who was first to get their period and yeah. who's, you know, who's getting the attention of boys and what kind of dangers lie there. So, I mean, it, it, you know, when we talk about class, we're not just even talking or you sizing each other up. It's not just monetary, it, it's sexual development, it's grades, it's attention from others where you sit in the, in the, cafeteria it's all of it so yeah well when when everybody looks and seems so similar i think the the wanting to find some way of individuating becomes all the more necessary and desperate on a a crafty crafty note question about form I don't know if you're familiar. Are you familiar with Jane Allison, who wrote this book called Spiral Meander Explode? About no, I don't know this book. So it's it's design and pattern in narrative, and I was thinking about that in relation to this because you know she was talking about sort of the traditional fry tags, escalating right. tension, escalating. climax, blah blah blah, mm-hmm. and so she wrote this really wonderful book about the different patterns and designs that narrative can take and. That's one, but that's hardly hardly descriptive of all of them. And she kind of gave visual shape to spiral novels and explosive novels and meandering novels. And I was thinking about that with with this book because it, it kind of isn't really the traditional Freitag uh, structure. And I was wondering if you're a visual thinker, if you gave 
any thought to sort of the the patterning of the form of this book and and the structure of this book and you know whether you were working sort of against that traditional structure or if you had something something else in mind for how to how to give this book shape and form this is going to be a really unsatisfying answer but i have a visual processing problem and i do not think in pictures i am extraordinarily not visual um, before we began our conversation, you, I hope this is okay to say, you so kindly said that we should, we could keep our cameras off because you were maybe going to close your eyes for part of it. And I thought, oh, thank God, you know, the, the best way to have a conversation is with your eyes shut because then you can really listen. Yes. But I realized how, how crazy that is. And then I told you about having been in a, a recording studio where I closed my eyes and I think really freaked out the person who was interviewing me. (laughs) All of which is to say, no, I didn't, I didn't have a visual representation of the shape of the novel. I can't even imagine trying to do that at any point, even after, after finishing the book, I have no idea what shape the book is. In fact, I, I really do think this is this is my best attempt at the sort of Aristotelian form with the rising action and there's a climax. There's, I mean, I, there's everything. Yeah. <laughs> like this is, yeah, yeah. this is it. This is, a, this is as linear as it gets. This is a, this is a question that I fielded since I first published my memoir in 2008, which to me is perfectly linear. I mean, it's the story of getting sick and then getting better and then not actually really being better, but it it all happens in order. And yet I was just flummoxed by the number of people who said, oh my God, you know, this is so, this is so formally interesting. It's so non-linear. And all I can say is that it, no, I mean, this is, this is as well as I can do linear. It's, it's linear. Like, I'm glad you find it interesting, but I'm really not trying to out any existing rule about what a linear narrative should look like to me this is this is linear the, the well the reason that i bring this up is because so many you know our, our most of our audience are writers themselves and so i think they kind of grip on to how do i do you know especially new writers how, how do i accomplish this how do i do this and books like save the cat or some of these other how-to manuals you know are very didactic about how you, you know, you need, you need something to happen on page 17. I think this is more true of genre fiction Mm. than it is of literary fiction, but, but I think novels like this give people such comfort in a template that doesn't look, I don't want to say formulaic, but yeah, but you know, it it doesn't look like every other novel sort of tends to look. And it, I, I think it opens up possibilities of storytelling and narrative that might not be on people's radar that they should pay attention to, which is the only reason I bring it up because I think you're right. I mean, there, there's certainly, it is linear and there is, there is certainly a climax and there is certainly a character change. There are all those things, but it doesn't require something to happen, you know, by page 25 and this thing to happen by, Mm. you know, page 70. Oh, it's so interesting that you say, I don't know if those are, those are hard and fast rules in these, um, these, these how to write a novel manual, but I just think, I mean, if there has to be something happening on every page, like why would I wait till 17? I, <laughs> right, although right. this is a short book. So um, yeah, no, no, I, I feel that things are happening constantly. Constantly. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, you know, all power to the people who churn out the formulaic books that sell millions of copies and, you know, live in castles and wherever. <laughs> 
I also want to talk about shame because shame just felt so present on talking about every something happening on every page. I mean, it just felt like shame was always happening on every page. Yeah. And I and I'm wondering if things like that do you set out to say, you know, that this is just such a pervasive emotion for Ruthie and, you know, it permeates itself in a thousand ways. Or do you look back on the novel as a whole and say, God, shame really was one of those themes that just kept coming up. I mean, are, are, do you kind of have feelings that you're trying to communicate to, and you, you know, direct arrows at that emotion in a thousand different ways, or does it? Does no, it just... it's much, it's much, it's much more um, ham-handed than that. Shame is interesting to me because shame is true. Like you, you don't lie about what you're ashamed about. The, the shame, you know, the, you brought up 300 arguments a few minutes ago. The first line of, of 300 arguments is you might as well start by, by confessing your, your deepest shame. Anything else would just be exposition. And I still believe that. I, I still, I'm drawn, um, you know, I, I would say like I'm perversely drawn, but no, I, I, I think I think this is just a fundamental of, you know, people who make worthwhile art in any medium are interested in that like deepest, you know, most painful throbbing shame because it's, that's where all the heat is. I mean, that's what we like construct these identities around in order to, to, to hide. And I just wanted to unearth all of, all of the hidden things you know, I, I sort of, it, it's so, I, I couldn't possibly describe where I come from in a pithy sentence or two, but I think one way to describe the Massachusetts of my childhood is that the shame was everywhere and we had just the most, we just barely papered over it in, in you know, it was, it was barely covered. And I think this is maybe more true for children than for adults. I mean, we've, uh, you know, once we're, once we are the age that you and I are, we've, we've constructed these like really skillful, um, you know, like, I don't want to say false identities, but you know, we've, we've found ways to carry our shame, but not have it just be the first thing that we're talking about to everybody that we meet constantly. And that's, what's so interesting about childhood. Like even Ruthie is old enough to know that she's supposed to hide her shame, but like, oh, when you're hanging out with like three and four-year-olds, like they don't give a fuck. Like they will talk about anything. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that I'm working on right now is it, it's a kind of, it's a work of what I'm calling choral philosophy. And it's constructed of the voices of thousands and thousands of very young children and the questions that they ask. Um, which is a little bit off topic, but not really, because, you know, writing about these girls in this town, I realized that, you know, despite the fact that I didn't want like a, like a naive a ch childish narrator, I, I'm still just, I, I, I wasn't really done with thinking about the ways that young children navigate the world and have to kind of figure things out from fundamentals without understanding like, oh, this is a structure, you know, culture is a structure. Here are some of the structures that we use to make sense of things that don't make sense. But it's so interesting to, to see how children with a really spare set of ways of understanding are just trying to make, trying to make sense of stuff. 
I could go on. <laughs> no, I love that. I don't read a ton of young adult fiction, but I do think it's interesting to to tell a story through that lens of I don't have the equipment. We were kind of talking about this at the beginning. I don't have the equipment to really describe what's happening to me. So I have to just describe it. Literally, this is what's happening to me because I don't have a construct to put around it. It's a kind of poverty almost. And it makes you resourceful, metaphorically resourceful. I also love that the book opens and closes with this image of the cemetery. I I just feel like the cemetery is going to live in my imagination. It's full of babies and children. That's a real place. That's the, that's based on the Congregational Church Cemetery in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Mm. I recently brought my son there and showed him all of the, I showed him all the dead babies and I showed him all of the, you know, there's a, there are Revolutionary War veterans there and there are Civil War veterans there and there are Vietnam War veterans there. And it's just, it's this crazily old palimpsest. I mean, there are, there are a lot of old cemeteries in Massachusetts, but this one is like, it covers like a good 300 years how often do you go back? And did you go back when you were writing this to sort of refresh your memory about things? I did not go for nine years. I didn't go while I was writing the book, but I took my son there just before the book came out. And it was his first time there since being a very, very little baby. So it was a lot of fun. I, t- I took him to, well, I took him to all my favorite places. I took him to Edward Gorey's house on Cape Cod, which is now it's sort of Edward Gorey, you know, fans museum. I took him to the cemetery. I took him to the, I took him to the lake where the geese slid on the frozen ice. And there aren't a lot of other real life places that are represented in the book. But um, that cemetery was definitely high on my list of places that I needed to show him. It's wonderful. Are there ways people can follow you? I know you have a great website. I know the book has has been out for a while. So the the tour part, I'm sure, is is probably behind you. But if people want to follow you, is that easy to do? Yeah, touring is behind me. I do have an extremely occasional newsletter that people can sign up for on my website. But they shouldn't expect anything for at least a year. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. And I was going to ask if now that you've done a novel, if there are more novels, it sounds like there's going to be more novels. There's going to be at least one more novel. Yes. Great. Sarah Mangusa, this is so fun. I'm so glad we got to do this again. I am too. Thank you so much, Marie. That was Sarah Mangusa. The book is Very Cold People. It is out and available now. In addition to our Patreon page, which we mentioned earlier, you can also visit our websites. Barbara's is barbarademarcobarrett.com or penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com, two R's in Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, and Spotify. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week. and Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.